Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. With that, let us continue our worship with our first scripture reading. Our first scripture comes from Mark chapter 13, verses 9 through 13. As for yourselves, beware, for they will hand you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. But say whatever is given you at that time, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The word of the Lord. All right. Can you believe it? We're almost to the end of this sermon series. It's only been a whole year. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Three to go. This is our, we're almost there. So, Matthew 5, 38 to 45, some of the verses that are most important to me personally. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you. Do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. The word of the Lord. So we are doing our sermon series, Church and State, The Rise of Early Christianity. As I said, only three more to go, including today. And we are in the fourth part of our sermon series, going from 120 to 430 AD. And we are talking about individual Christians who made a significant contribution to the Christian faith. These are better known as church fathers and mothers. And these are people who are going to help Christianity transform from this fledgling faith that's kind of growing into the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, each week, if you've been here, you probably know what we're doing is we're talking about this individual. I'm going to tell you a story, who they are, where they came from, how they became a Christian. Then we're talking about what they did, what was their significant contribution, what made them worth remembering, and then finally how this impacts us here in the 21st century. Last week, we talked about the church father origin and his belief in universal salvation. This week, we're talking about the church father, Tertullian. So if I'm being perfectly honest with you, 
We don't actually know that much about Tertullian's life. We really don't. We know that he was born sometime around 160 AD in Carthage. Now, Carthage, this particular city right here, if you were here for when we talked about Perpetua, do you remember the church mother, Perpetua, the woman who was martyred? So when we talked about her, she's from that exact same city. What we also know about him, though, is that he was the recipient of an incredible education. He was well-versed in grammar, rhetoric, philosophy, and the law. Now, beyond that, all we kind of know about his parents is that they were pagans and that they were very, very wealthy. And by his late teens, he finished his education in Carthage and he decides he's going to go up to Rome. Now, Rome was where things were happening in the ancient world. That's why you would go there. And we don't know if he went there to study some more or to begin practicing law. There's kind of conflicting information on that. But he's there for about 20 years. And it's during that time that he first encounters the Christian faith. He encounters the church and he's quite taken by it, but he doesn't convert to Christianity. That doesn't happen until he returns back to Carthage around 200 AD. And at the age of 40, he finally converts over to Christianity. Now, none of his writings and none of the writings that we have from him that have survived, we don't know anything about his conversion experience, why he shifted over, why he decided to do it. But what we do know is that he was very, very taken with the courage of the martyrs. So the people who were willing to sacrifice themselves, and he very much believed in the moral values that were promoted by Christians. These are things that he really felt were very, very important. So for the next 25 years, from 200 AD onward, he is going to be writing on behalf of the Christian faith. He writes prolifically. Remember Origen last week, if you were here, do you remember how I told you that Origen, he was this prolific writer and, and he did all of these things for Christianity. He was this great defender of the faith. So is Tertullian. And since we know far less about who he was than what he did, we're going to focus on some of his works, what he actually said. And then from there, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how that lays a foundation for the last two sermons in this series. So, do you understand what we're doing today? You with me? You on target? You there? All right, excellent. Okay, so he comes back around 200, and I told you about Perpetua. What happens to Perpetua? She gets what? Martyred. She dies, right? And so when he comes back, it's around this time that... Christians are actually in the situation where they're starting to be persecuted. So what Tertullian does is he starts writing all of these letters and he starts writing treatises to these officials that are living in Carthage and he's trying to inform them about who Christians are and what they believe because he sees the reason why they're being persecuted as due to a lot of misinformation that's being passed around. And in particular, he starts focusing in on the Christian principles of non violence. You see, many Roman officials believed at this point in time that Christians were trying to overthrow the government. And he said, well, that's really not possible because the Christian religion, it prohibits violence in any form, even to the point of being willing to defend yourself while you're being attacked. So what we read this morning, what you heard TC read, this was something that they really believe very strongly in. So let's just take a look at that again. As for yourselves, beware, for they will hand you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings because of me, and you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
Now, what is this saying? This is saying that when you assume the identity of Christian, it comes with consequences. And I think it's hard for us in our day and time to really appreciate what that means. It's hard for we take it for granted because it's hard for us to appreciate the level to which these people really believed in the principles of pacifism and nonviolence. This is the reason why they would convert over to Christianity. When you called yourself a Christian, when you took that on, you were basically making a promise that you were going to dispense with all forms of violence in your life. So those words we read from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, what does he say? He says, turn the other cheek and love your enemy. These are things that were at the forefront of your life and were imprinted on your heart. They became your mantra. It's how you lived. Now today, I would be willing to suggest that many Christians, when they see turn the other cheek and love your enemy, they're like, well, yeah, I mean, come on, he says it, right? But I mean, can we really do that? Is it really practical, Alex? I mean, come on. Because if it's a A world without violence, that just doesn't work because if we don't have violence, then what's going to happen? The bad guys are all going to win, right? That's how a lot of people think of it. But Tertullian, he kind of picks that logic apart. And he has this amazing way of talking about how nonviolence can really change the world. And it's because of his arguments that actually Christianity eventually does become the official religion of the Roman Empire. What you have to appreciate, and this is really hard for us to understand in our world, particularly in America, but it's hard to understand how Roman society was at that time. I've talked about this in other sermons in the past, but the level of violence that people had to deal with on a day-to-day basis in the ancient world was incredible. It was huge, the amount of violence they had to deal with. The Romans believed that violence was the way for them to achieve ends. So, for instance, if you wanted to maintain peace, this is what you did. This is how they maintained peace in the Roman Empire. They had soldiers stationed all over the empire. All over the empire. And those soldiers were there to intimidate the public. That was their job, was to intimidate the public so that you wouldn't break the law. And if you did break the law, the soldiers had it at their discretion. They could go out and they could punish you right there, sight on scene if they wanted to. Now you have to imagine that would be a pretty effective deterrent, would it not? And it worked pretty well. That's just one example though. So you walk outside. When you walk outside, generally speaking, do you worry that you're going to have the threat of violence come at you? Do you think about that generally? No, you tend not to. But this is how they live their life. Every time you went outside, that was there. Here's another example of how violence was a part of your life. People at this day and time loved the gladiatorial games. They loved watching gladiators fight. Now, when gladiators would fight, do you realize what they're doing? They're fighting to kill the other person. And it's not like watching Russell Crowe in The Gladiator when you watch that, you know, however many years ago that came out. That's simulated violence, right, on screen, where people aren't actually dying. You would go to the amphitheater or the Colosseum, and you were there to watch people kill each other. That was your entertainment, was watching people die. So that just gives you a sense of the level of violence that we are talking about 
in the ancient world. So then Christianity comes along, and they say that violence is wrong, and that it's not the best way to deal with your problems. And you can imagine how they felt about that, right? Because nobody had ever said anything like this before. You have to imagine that for the Romans, many Romans, particularly the Roman officials who were responsible for running the empire, they sat there and they thought that was ludicrous. How are you supposed to run an empire without the threat of violence to keep people in line? How are you supposed to do that? Now, the reason why they thought that way is because their whole world was based around violence. But Tertullian, he was such a good arguer. He was so good with his arguments. He was able to help them see the potential of what Christianity could actually do for them. So this is one of the things he said. He goes, okay, guys, because he's talking to people in Carthage, right? He's like, you may have noticed that even though you're persecuting people, even though you're going at them, Christianity is still growing. People are still converting over to Christianity all the time. So... He says, I want you to imagine something for a moment. This is a hypothetical. He says, imagine that a large portion of the population all of a sudden becomes Christian, and they adopt these principles of nonviolence. What that means is, all of a sudden, now, people are actually not breaking the law as much, and you don't have to enforce the law with such brutality. It's a win-win for everyone, right? Okay. Now, he puts this argument out there, and as you can imagine, people are a little bit skeptical. They were kind of like, I mean, sure, your logic makes sense, but is it really going to happen? And so this is where he does something absolutely brilliant. He is the first person to ever argue for the freedom of religion. And this is what he says. So you have to realize at this time, though, in the Roman Empire... You couldn't just worship any religion you wanted. There were some religions that were illegal. So if you were going to be open about it, and the, the key thing here is open. If you were open about your worship of a religion, it had to be sanctioned by the Roman government. And Christianity was not sanctioned. It was technically illegal. You could be a Christian. Don't get me wrong. You just had to be quiet about it. Couldn't be open. So Tertullian, he was arguing, he said, all religions should be legal. And this is his premise. This is really fun. I like this. He says, he goes, people are drawn to the truth. And therefore, if a religion has truth, then people are going to want to follow it. So it's kind of like how some people talk about the free market today. You know, the idea that the best idea always rises to the top. Well, he believed that the best religion will always rise to the top. And so this is basically what he was saying. And I just think this is so amazing. He goes, okay, so if Christianity has any merit to it, if it has any truth to it, then people will follow it. And the side benefit to you as politicians is that because they adhere to these principles of nonviolence, it creates a more orderly and well-behaved society. Win-win for you, right? On the other hand, if it doesn't have any truth and it doesn't have any merit, people won't follow it and it'll go away of its own accord, which is what you all want anyway. Brilliant argument. Made total sense. And... Although it didn't get a ton of traction at the time, there were some people who thought, okay, I can go with it, but most people didn't. It laid the foundation so that 100 years later, what you have is this emperor, his name is Constantine, we're going to talk about him next week, one of the most important people in this entire series. 
He's the first person to really embrace Christianity, the first emperor to embrace Christianity. He buys into Tertullian's argument. And he doesn't just make Christianity legal, he legalizes all religions, which opens the door for Christianity to eventually become the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, is freedom of religion something that we care a lot about in this country? Yes, it is. Very, that's the foundation of our country, is it not? And we have Tertullian to thank for that because he came up with the idea in the first place. But what's fascinating is that as much as freedom of religion has been at the foundation of our country since its inception, freedom of religion today is leading somewhere that nobody could have anticipated. Today, freedom of religion is leading to no religion at all. The largest growing segment of our population today are people who do not subscribe to any religion whatsoever. A Pew Research study that was done, our Gallup poll estimates that 33% of the American population, one-third, no longer has any religious affiliation behind it. None whatsoever. And that they expect in the coming years that that number is going to grow, which I find to be kind of ironic, actually, because why did a lot of those Europeans come over to the American continent? What was the point? Why were they coming here? To escape religious persecution, which brings me back to Tertullian's argument on truth. Now, I don't know about you, but do you, do you agree with Tertullian that people hear the truth and they are drawn to it? I do. I believe in that. I believe that that's true. I believe people hear the truth and they are drawn to it. Now, when I use that word truth, i got to define that for a second. So truth to me is not factual truth in the sense of things that you can prove and disprove. That's not what I mean. What I mean by truth is something that resonates within your soul. It's something that brings the world into alignment for you. That's what I see as a truth. Now, that can be a bit subjective, right? Because different people have different truths. But... Let me throw out a truth. Let's see if I can find a truth that's fairly universal to all of us in here. So a truth that I think resonates with most people, most people, is that nonviolence is better than violence. Now, is that a truth that you believe in? I think most people in here would say, yes, generally speaking, nonviolence is better than violence. Okay, now why do we say this is true? We say it's true, it resonates with us, because we know how the victims of violence suffer. Let's just use an example that everybody can understand. Soldiers, okay? Recently, we have become very, very aware of how soldiers who are coming back from war, how they can be affected by violence. Not just the physical aspect of things, but also the mental aspect of things, where you can have PTSD, heavy PTSD. Many soldiers who have come back, if you've ever encountered them before, who have had this, it is very, very sad. Their lives have been transformed by the experiences that they've had. They can't function in society. They can't barely do day-to-day -day life. And I can't help but think, when I met, I met a number of these people over my lifetime, I met people when I was working at the psychiatric hospital, and I just couldn't help but thinking, what if we could have talked through our problems? as opposed to sending these people to fight with violence on our behalf? How would their lives have been so different? They could have been more like us, 
if they hadn't had to be in those violent situations. And of course, that comes back to what, what Jesus is talking about from his Sermon on the Mount, right? What does Jesus say? He says, turn the other cheek. He says, love your enemy. Now, when I say love your enemy, everybody always says, oh yeah, love your enemy. That's a good thing, right? <laughs> but when you use that word love, if you love your spouse, if you love your child, if you love your friend, if you're younger in here, if you love your parents, right? When I use that word love, what does that mean? That means you would do anything for them, right? You would be there for them through thick and thin. You would be next to them through all of the stuff that they're going through. So when he says love your enemy, what is he saying to do? He's saying the person who hates you, you're supposed to be there for them in the same way that you would be there for your spouse, for your child, for your friend. That's what he's asking you to do. Now, that's counterintuitive, right? Like, we look at that and we're like, eh, I don't know about that. But at the same time, if you sit there and you think about it, and you let it kind of sit into your soul a little bit, I think it really does make sense. And it feels, to me, like truth. And in fact, that truth was so important to the earliest Christians that that's a big reason why they converted over. They converted over because of those principles of nonviolence. They saw what it was all about. They learned about Jesus. They learned about what he taught. And they said, you know what? There's truth here, and I want to be part of that. So Tertullian's concept, right, that people see the truth and they're drawn to it, do you agree? Same thing. It's true. Is it just as true today as it was back then? I agree. So here's my problem, and I'm going to throw the question out to you. This is the tough thing. If it's true what he's saying, then why is it that we find today that people are fleeing the Christian faith in record numbers? Because the truth of the Christian faith is no different today than it was back then. Am I correct about that? So why are people leaving it? Well, I'm going to tell you the harsh answer. And I'm telling it to you because I think it's true. But I think the harsh answer is because we don't live it out. You have to remember that when Tertullian was putting forth his argument, people see the truth, they're drawn to it. And at that time, when you became a Christian, that was a big deal. You were living it out because you were taking a stand against the violence that dominated the culture of the day. And I will tell you that here in 2018, I don't hear many Christians standing up and saying, hey, we should adhere to the principles of nonviolence found in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't hear many Christians standing up and saying, hey, violence is not the right way to get things done. I don't hear many pastors in the media saying, turn the other cheek and love your enemy. In fact, more often than not, what I hear people saying, particularly pastors, and it blows me away, is that they're promoting violence over diplomacy. And that they're coming forth and they're saying that, you know what? If somebody's against us, we need to consider them an enemy and we need to use violence to crush them. Is it any wonder that this is when, the, the, when you're hearing this out of the mouths of Christians that people are fleeing the Christian faith in record numbers? I think it is true. People are drawn to the truth when they hear it. But if we are not willing to live it out, then ultimately people are not going to be willing to join our ranks. And this brings me to the main point of this sermon. And this is hard to hear. And this is going to be tough for a church like ours. But you need to hear it. Christianity, at its core, is counter-cultural. 
Christianity at its core is countercultural. And if you're used to not making waves, if you're used to just sitting back and saying, I'm just trying to live my life the best that I can, that's tough. I understand that. But it is countercultural. From its inception, Jesus' movement was designed to go against the grain. And as a Christian, we have to be willing to go against the grain. When you become a Christian, when you claim that identity, what you are essentially saying, more often than not, is that you are going to be at odds with what society thinks is the right way to move forward. You are going to be at odds with what a lot of people think is right in society. And it's hard to stand up and say, I think differently. But if you're willing to own your faith, if you're willing to stand up and say, this is what I believe, even when it's not popular, if you're willing to stand up and say, I believe in what Jesus teaches, I believe in turning the other cheek, I believe in loving my enemy, I believe these things because that's what he did, and I'm going to do that as well. If you're willing to do that, then people will see who we are, they will see the truth, and they will be drawn to it. And our church in the future, one of the things that we're going to be doing and we're going to be focusing on is living out our faith. I'm not trying to say that you in here aren't already doing that. I know many of you are. But we got to take it to the next level. We have to be willing to truly stand up and say, this is who we are. This is what we believe. And if we're willing to do that, my friends, I believe that people will see us and they will say of us, I want to be like those people because they live the truth. Now the next two sermons, the last two sermons we're going to do in this series, we're going to be talking about what we need to do to live out the truth of the Christian faith so that people will take notice of us. That's what we're going to be doing. And I hope you can be here. I hope you're not going on vacation. Cancel your vacation plans. Okay? (laughs) I'm sorry. You guys got to just... Cancel it out. No, no. <laughs> the next two sermons, they are together. They are, they're a pair. I understand that some people are going to be gone in foreign countries and things like that. But it's going to be a great end to the series. I've been working towards it for a long time. You all have been working towards it for a long time. So thank you. And I believe together that we are going to become that community that people look at and say they live the truth. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.